Hello, welcome to this long overdue fourth episode of the Mixology Collection podcast. My name is Damien. And for those of you that don't know me, my name is Roop. And for those of you who do, he's the now. How is everybody? How are you, Damien? What are you saying, man? What have I missed? We're back. Cannot believe we're back. This is incredible. <laughs> I mean, obviously, we have this quarantine and lockdown we're going to talk about. Um, but let's try to explain to people what, why it's taken us a little bit longer than normal to, to get this episode out. Yeah, it's, it's been crazy. So I, our, obviously our listeners don't know really. We, we started the podcast a little bit later than we, we would have liked originally, uh, mm-hmm. purely because I had a surgery for hernia. Yeah, how January. are you? How are you now? I'm doing okay, but it's back, <laughs> just like this podcast. <laughs> so, um, so I was off work for six weeks. Um, half halfway through those six weeks, we launched a podcast uh, finally. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, and then as soon as we got the momentum going, it was lockdown. <laughs> Crazy times, man. And then obviously it's lockdowns, quarantine. Our whole thing is about visiting people, traveling being in their home cities talking to them on their on their home turf and now we're not allowed to leave leave the house so that was uh that was that was crazy times man but crazy times yeah i think we're i think we've kind of sussed out a way of doing this now so well yeah well you know me with my audio background i really wanted to make sure that we kept the the quality of what we were doing um so it took us a while to figure out a proper system um but we're, we're here. I think we're we ready. are here. And what, where else is we going, man? It's not all been bad news. Come on, give us the good news. Oh, you mean uh, just having a baby during uh, <laughs> <laughs> during lockdown? <laughs> yeah, well, well, you didn't. But yeah, con- congratulations, my man. Thank how, you. How, how is it? What, so, um, boy, girl? Uh, so, Sophie, a girl. Amazing. It's crazy how quickly it's all gone. And uh, and how, how's, uh, how's fatherhood treating you so far? It's good. I, th- I think she's definitely ready to be in this industry because she just won't sleep at night. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she loves the party. That's definitely a box that needs to be ticked, I tell you. So I think we left our heart in Birmingham. You know what? I think I think we did. It was only until you kind of pointed out earlier that I think we left our heart in Birmingham. Um, so episode two was our friend Carl. Carl Hawkins, a.k.a. The uh, Gentleman UK. I really enjoyed that podcast, man. That was a really interesting conversation. He's got a, he's so interesting, such an interesting guy. And then episode three was who? Well, it was Amman over at 40 St. Paul's. 40 St. Paul's, number one gym bar in the world. Yep. Like, what, what? And then today... Who have we got? Who have we got? Come on. I'll leave it to you. <laughs> Drum roll. <laughs> Do you know what? I've been following this gentleman's career path um, for a long time, and and he has ticked some incredible boxes. I think this guy's going to be really interesting to talk to, uh, and I'm, I really want to get closer to to how he thinks, really, more than anything else. He, he seems to. I think I, I said it on earlier when it, when you got that curve of innovation, he always hmm. seems to be on that cusp of that curve, like just slightly ahead of everyone else. Um, and I'm really looking forward to getting closer to, to how he's done it. So I um, want to welcome Mr. James Bowker. It's Bowker, isn't it? Not Bowker, Bowker. Right? No, Bowker. dead on. Bowker, Bowker is yeah, perfect. Yeah, I really, yeah. I really, yeah. Bowker, yeah. That, would be, that would be slightly embarrassing. Um, yeah. So yeah, James Bowker, how are you, man? T- t- how are you getting on? Really good, man. Really, thanks for having me on. First oh, week. no, no, thank you. Very, 
you know, it's, it's so nice uh, to be doing something during lockdown that doesn't involve staring at a computer and talking to people over a video conference. It's been pretty decent. Like obviously, so I'm, I'm obviously working as a brand ambassador at the moment. So the roles change quite a lot insofar as I'm not out and about visiting bars and seeing all of our kind of our friends in the industry. But at the same time, I'm now basically the company's sole contact with our friends in the industry. So I'm spending loads of time just on the phone, chatting to people, finding out what's happening and then working out how the hell we get through it, basically. That's amazing. Well, first things first, congratulations on the new role. I Thank say you. new role, it's been a while now, but... Well, it's going to be, what, a year? One year, yeah, one year. It's just gone, actually. Um, yeah. Well, congratulations on the anniversary, yeah. man. But I think we're gonna we're probably going to delve a little bit uh, into earlier times. For yeah, me. Um, so I'm going to let you lead the way there, Damien. So let's go for it. Yeah, this, so, I mean, as we ask everybody who joins, you know, kind of just to find out how they started, uh, typically the story goes, somebody needed some money. Uh, just to keep them uh, alive during the student days and then all of a sudden realise that they can make a career out of it. Yeah. Um, I, obviously, we always research our guests and your name popped up on an academia paper very much to do with politics. I couldn't wrap my head around it whatsoever, but I, I presume that's what you studied at uni? Yes, I was actually, um, so just prior to going to Japan for the first time a few years ago, I was partway through a PhD. Uh, I'm very geeky behind the scenes and anyone who, uh, who follows what I do on, on all the various social media platforms has probably noticed that ridiculous <laughs> that ridiculous obsession with, with the details. Um, but yes, yeah, so I, I kind of, same as everyone, you're right, everyone does have that same story really. And I think it's really interesting how you can judge kind of um, the traditional generation of bartenders with perhaps a, a new modern breed of bartender that we're seeing coming up. Uh, and I would count myself as being very much partly part in both of those generations, one foot in each, because I definitely think there's a generation like perhaps you guys come from, and I certainly feel I partially belong to as well, which is you just got a job to make some cash then it turns out that job is damn well amazing, great fun. And then the next thing you know, 10 years have gone by and you're flogging whiskey for a, for a living. So like, it's, I think that's, that was a huge part of it for me was just necessity. I grew up in um, Milton Keynes. Uh, so it's a little kind of, just a town, like a commuter town, halfway between London and Birmingham. And we uh, we lived in the countryside to a certain extent. And there was there were like no, no jobs at all in that kind of little village. The only thing I could uh, do to raise a bit of cash when I was kind of 15, 16 years old was to go and start in the kitchen at the local pub. So just scrubbing down dishes, collecting glasses. And I just did the same thing that I think that story that we've heard so many times, you know, after a couple of weeks of scrubbing dishes, I managed to charm my way onto the floor. And then a few weeks after being on the floor i managed to charm my way behind the bar turns out didn't know this uh, until then but you can you can actually be behind the bar selling booze at the age of 16 you're just not allowed to authorize the sale you're not allowed That's to be right. the person, yeah, you know, yeah. approving it now this is a fairly busy countryside pub so i was able to literally start making cocktails i started a cocktail program just because i tasted a sex on the beach and i thought that's bang tidy started <laughs> at the age of literally i was 16 at this stage just quickly whipping up cocktails launched a cocktail menu in that little pub and then you know one thing led to another before long i was one of the longest work serving members of staff there and i just really really fell in love with having you know freedom around alcohol that's that's uh, that's amazing man. i mean it's really interesting so you say you're a geek at heart so you've always been that way even at 16 years old yeah but what uh, as a 16 year old how do you get to a point where you're uh, pot washing or you're in a kitchen and then you make your way onto the bar and think to yourself do you know what there's a bar program here there's something i could do here to 
not only learn how to make these drinks, but also to pass on this information. How do you get to that point as a 16 year old in your head? Like, how does that At happen? that stage, I hadn't quite reached um, that point of wanting to like really learn everything and pass it on. I just wanted to have the fun side of cocktail bartending. Uh, okay, yeah, so yeah. doing a bit of the, you know, I was never any good at flair, but yeah, flaring a little bit to a certain extent, <laughs> basically dropping ice on the floor is what I mean by that. But yeah, so like, you know, just the basics was the fun stuff. And then obviously when I turned 18, I um, went off to Birmingham to university yeah. within my within freshers week I was taken to the Jekyll and Hyde by some older student friends who were like this is one of our favorite places to go I had the typical kind of hashtag basic Karen style cocktails on their sweetie <laughs> jars fell in love with this you know the fact that they made, managed to make a, a drink that tasted like love hearts and a drink that tasted like cinnamon toffee that's mind-blowing and I was like that's what I need to learn and then I've got a fun story of actually how I got that job which I'll tell a little bit later but yeah okay, I managed, to, managed to wing that role I, uh, you might call them uh, hashtag Karen drinks, but let's please not make that a thing. These are disco <laughs> drinks, and they always will be disco drinks. And I have a soft spot in my heart for disco drinks. Oh, hugely. I mean, I, you saw the menu at Nocturnal Animals. We did an entire drinks menu inspired by those exact disco classics. So um, where about where about are we in our timeline then? So what year are we when you get yourself to Jekyll and Hyde? So what? So it would have been 2000, 2008, 2000, early 2009. Uh, it was January 2009 that I started working in the pub. Um, and then obviously... A couple of years later, 2011, go over to Birmingham. That's when I start working at the Jekyll and Hyde. I was there for a year and a half, uh, year and a half or so, and maybe two years. And then I got headhunted to go over to the Edge Baston, and that's obviously since since then I've I've known you two. So would yeah. you um, would you have um, worked with Carl Hawkins at the time then? Because he was yes. where he was. Yeah, Have shout yeah, out to Carl Hawkins. Shout out to the big man, the gentleman. <laughs> no, I love the episode, uh, the previous episode you did with Carl. He's he's one of those figures that's very much been a turning point in my career sort of thing like one of those people that you go okay he's helped me so much and always supported me and been so like the, the amount of times where he's just come over in the middle of a crazy night giving me a big hug and said something that's you know you know brought a tear to my eye and encouraged me mm. cannot be expressed how grateful i am that's, to him that's but, amazing yeah. what do you yeah. think the biggest yeah. what's the biggest thing that you've taken away from carl then what was what one thing that he really kind of gave you um i think I think every Barton's had this from some manager at some stage, but the, there were two main things. Which the, the first manager, him and his, at the time he was he was dating a lady called Kate, and they were the two managers at the Jekyll and Hyde. Okay. And they were the two first examples I had of good management, uh, which is not intending to throw any shade at my colleagues in the pub where I'd worked pri- previously. <laughs> yeah. but it was very badly managed. Um, you know, the fact that We've a 16, 17-year-old lad was able to be one of the most experienced and senior members of staff in a pub demonstrates how bad the other staff were right mm. um so these guys were just great managers they made us feel really good about ourselves and what we're doing they pushed creativity which was huge for me because i've always been really i've wanted to be creative but i'm only very good at music creatively and like writing creatively i've never been good at art or painting or like drama or anything like that dance is my worst um, <laughs> but, yeah my, my spanish my spanish ballet loving girlfriend is not a fan of my my dancing skills um, but yeah so so yeah and then the, the most important thing for me really that he he and kate both really embodied was the mutual importance of hospitality like proper authentic true heartfelt hospitality yeah. but combining that with really providing an experience for the people that come into your bar um because there is a distinction between a bar and a pub and i think when people are choosing to go and have cocktails they're choosing to go and experience something that's kind of escapist right something a bit like mm. experiential in and of itself and Absolutely. if you're not as a host providing 
that's experience, which if you've met Carl, if you've heard him on this concept, on this, on this podcast, you know, he gives you a damn experience. Yeah, man. I mean, yeah. that, that was, uh, uh, again, shout out to Carl Hawkins. Like that, that podcast is an absolute pleasure. It's, he's somebody that, uh, well, as if you listen to the podcast, obviously he and I kind of grew up together in the industry. So having that opportunity to sit and talk with him was, was incredible, man. But so getting away from that a little bit, but also on the point, do you think that's what it was that helped you say get headhunted for for the next role that you that you started to to to, to get into with the Edgebaston? Is that do you think that's what set you apart from really else I, or what you noticed? I have no I have no real idea exactly what they saw in me. Uh, I'm very grateful that they saw something. Um, mm. I remember the night like incredibly clearly. So um, they they basically the, they had another hotel called the Kenworth, which was at the time a really really successful cocktail bar, and basically they were renowned in the Midlands as being like the the top people, like the top cocktail guys was, was the Kenilworth team. Uh, and, but they also had a kind of scary reputation for being like quite, just quite scary people, quite like, you know, <laughs> tough um, and, you know, not necessarily always the most friendly. And turns out that's nonsense. There's really lovely, friendly people there, but that was the reputation. Yeah. And we kind of got, you know, how we all in the industry, we text each other, we update each other. So we got that text that said, Kenilworth team out on the piss tonight. Uh, they're going to come to the Jekyll and Hyde in, in an hour, like be prepared. You know, they're, they're going to be nitpicking and, you know, be ready to give them a good time sort of thing. And um, because of that fearsome reputation for being such great bartenders they had. So all of us, all of the more senior bartenders at least all started like getting a bit nervous and, you know, what are we going to do? What, 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 like, what, what is the weirdest shit we've got in the garden right now? What can we do? You know, what can we do? Um, and, and I was there like not a senior bartender looking around, like who the hell are these people going to be like what there's a celebrity thing in in this world of bartending it's just making drinks and it's fun like there shouldn't be this weird pressure just because some no, people are they shouldn't, right. should they? Um, and and kate particularly um was just so chill and so calm throughout the whole thing i later found out that they were actually mainly coming to observe her and and potentially headhunt her as well and she did she got she, she was the main she got headhunted by them and she just like stayed so calm and like helped she literally pushed me to the front made me serve them was like you're the most friendly person here give them a good time and you know instinctively what balance tastes like because in that company we had very strict specs um in terms of the recipes and maybe some of those specs weren't the best balance but they were the best for the business and that's obviously sometimes what you have to do so that company um, being uh, the Jekyll and Hyde right the Jekyll and Hyde was part of a wider a wider group called Bits and Twisted really fantastic uh, okay. group in Birmingham that's done a huge amount for the industry there but as I say some of the drinks um for obvious cost reasons the the exact recipe you're theoretically supposed to do is maybe not as well balanced as if you just made a few adjustments. So Kate Absolutely. was like, you do this, James, because I know that you will make those adjustments so that we impress these important, you know, these important people that we want to, you know, give a good time. These are our peers. We want to want to impress them. Um, so, so I did that. Um, I got chatting to them a little bit, um, had a bit of banter as you do behind the bar. And then <laughs> yeah. Kate, Kate literally said to me afterwards, she was like, look, they've just offered me a job and they asked me about you. Do you want me to put you forward for it as well? And I was like, hells to the damn well, yes. Um, <laughs> and yeah, that, that's what happened, basically. That's amazing, man. So Damien, you're, you're relatively, I suppose, I keep saying you're relatively new to the industry, but you've been in it a while now. Well, three I mean, years now. Yeah, I mean, the Edge Baston is definitely um, a venue that you would have heard of straight away, right? Yes, I, I, it's one that I've not visited. You know, the UK is so large that it's just impossible to visit every you know acclaimed venue uh, but I, obviously I was with the research I was looking at um, 
looking at the bar itself. And it seemed like they were really at the cutting edge um, for a bar outside of London with having the Rotovap, uh, being able to distill their own uh, liquid. Um, so that was obviously a great opportunity for you as well to learn new techniques yeah. uh, to then take into your career because probably there was a lot of venues in London that didn't even have that. Yeah. Um, what was the driving factor behind their decision to do that? Um, so there's, there's a whole load of different things at play here. So what, one is that the um, there's two brothers that co-own the, the Edge Baston, so Darren and Stuart. Um, and Darren in particular had spent a long time living in New Orleans and working as a bartender in some of the most famous bars in the world in, in New Orleans. So this is a dude that's like really like his he knows his stuff like it's so easy. He's, he's quite like a, a kind of hot and cold character. Like one second he loves you, the next he hates you. And it's like, it's quite, it's like watching Gordon Ramsay or something. The best ones but are, man. It, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Such, and, and gave me, again, so much support throughout my career. But, um, but like to give an indication of how much talent this guy has, the first time I was preparing for world class, one of the challenges was to, they would, they were going to basically blind for, force us to blind taste cocktails. We'd have to pick out what was the exact cocktail, the classic cocktail that we were blind tasting and also which specific Diageo product was in that, that cocktail. Wow. And to practice for that, um, I took a train over to the other hotel in Kenilworth and Darren and I spent, he Put, sort me out with a bedroom. We we spent the evening drinking miniature classics that one of the, one of their head bartender was making up for us to, to test us. And we between us um, tasted 180 different cocktails that night. Obviously, just in little sips here and there, and obviously <laughs> yeah. spittooning yeah. for the obviously. most part. <laughs> you know, drink aware, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. <laughs> exactly. But then um, exactly. it, it got to the it got to the end of it. And having tasted this 180 cocktails, um, can you guess how many he failed to identify on the palate? I'm gonna don't only because you asked the question that way. I'm gonna say mm. six. What about two. you, Daniel? What no. two out of 180? What? <laughs> Who does wow. that? His, his palate is, and he smokes like, and, and he smokes like a chimney. It's crazy. But this guy just, you know, he has this fantastic knowledge of classics, and he hugely respects that. So when we opened, God, I cannot tell you how tough it was. So our opening menu was 88 cocktails plus the expected list of 120 classics, all of which had to be passed at a 95 percent. Uh, accuracy rates on a written wow. test so and we had only two weeks from receiving that um that spec list to having to pass those tests so that you can imagine was was two of the hardest weeks ever well wow. yeah <laughs> I imagine yeah well wow. yeah, well yeah i mean but also I, I bet it was incredibly valuable for for you your development your growth as a bartender and then obviously yeah. moving on to some of the stuff that you've done I think I've read somewhere that for, for world class, you had to identify different types of vodka. Oh, man. Yeah, I, I, I'm really, really lucky to be blessed with, since a young age, I've been very lucky to just have quite a good palate. Like, I've always been really obsessed with flavor and, and picking things out and balance and stuff like that. So that was one of my favorite world class challenges, coincidentally. I think everyone else is one of their least favorite because it was a written exam, an hour-long written exam on the history and science of vodka, <laughs> followed okay. by a, just a palate, a blind tasting. So, yeah, the exam was damn well hard and the blind tasting even more so when you taste five vodkas and you had to specify the raw material of those vodkas and the exact brand and i think from what the um the guys behind world class told me afterwards i was the only person that got them all right which was really really fun wow. yeah but um, the geek in you really love that though yeah mate i was i was i was like a little toddler <laughs> with just been given a cookie but it's funny you say about the the equipment at the edge baston like that was never the main intention i don't think for for darren mm. that was that was more an in indicative 
of the amount of support he would give to the staff that worked there. So our first bit of serious kit, we had, you know, um, kind of basic kitchen equipment, like, you know, ovens, hobs, you know, backpack, etc. Okay. But then the main se- first serious kit we got was the uh, centrifuge, uh, proper, not like a spindle, like a proper industrial 5,000 pound bit of kit. And that was because one of my colleagues at the time, a guy called Luke, had been extolling its its virtues for about a year was really really keen on it and you know had had a few great job offers and darren you know in wanting to make sure that we kept this great member of staff got that piece of kit i had a similar thing a year later where the guy at the team at 69 Colbert row were discussing roles with me and at the time that was my favorite bar ever that was yep. pre-controversy i should say <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well it's still a bar at the end of the day it's a wonderful bar at the end of the yeah, day but it, but it is obviously uh, facing its, its difficulties at the moment in the industry but yeah. and for good reason but let's move past that tricky subject I think but the, the key but, is, is that I was offered uh, to go and go and work with this amazing kit there that they had and I said to Darren I was going to leave the the edge baston and he said well Jay what are the reasons and I said well I want to learn from this person number one and two I want to have the opportunity to learn with this equipment he said well okay how about I know Tony how about I introduce you uh, we become friends and we keep the kit indoors so you maintain your freedom and creativity so at that point I was promoted I got the kit that I wanted and I was given complete freedom and autonomy around the creative side of the menu. That's amazing. Now, for, for, for our listeners who who might not know what some of this stuff is, just, an, just a really easy kind of way of explaining it. But if you want to give us a couple of liners of what a centrifuge is and what... Yeah, for sure. Just so, really simple. Thankfully, my job now is to make things simple. So in a nutshell, <laughs> um, basically, you, you have a centrifuge is what you see on CSI when they put the blood on it to, to, to test blood samples. And it basically just spins really fast. And what that does is it causes heavier particles to separate from lighter particles. And in reality, that just means all your solids go to one end of the machine or one end of the tub and all your liquids go to the other. And it, it's effectively clarifies things so if you put some citrus juice in there you add a little bit of chemical to break that down some enzymes spins around you get completely what looks like water but is in fact lemon juice as acidic as flavorsome as everything and then just a little kind of sliver of weird gooey like solids that are left at the bottom so that's, that's a really cool man and your mm-hmm. rotavap because i think Rot- you mentioned that as well rotavap yeah it's um so we had names for them it was cindy the centrifuge and, <laughs> centrifuge and, and roxanne the rotavap um, but a rotavap is just like a normal pot still basically so a the way we make spirits is you take something like beer, which is low in alcohol, and then you heat it up, and then you basically are able to separate the alcohol and the water by doing that, because alcohol evaporates at a lower temperature than water. That's how it works. And a rotavap, the only difference is that you basically create a vacuum, so it's much smaller, and you suck all the air pressure out, and that means you can do the exact same thing, but low temperatures. That's perfect, man. Thanks for that. Like I said, just in case we've got any listeners that, that weren't really sure what the difference is. Yeah, were. for sure, man. But I mean, you've been incredibly lucky, and like you just like you've just said, um, incredibly blessed in respect to to your experiences and what you've been able to use in the equipment. But f- again, for those those people listening, for those those bartenders that are coming up behind you and probably are watching you um, and wanting to learn. I from hope yourself, not. Bless them. Uh, how, <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to go wrong. <laughs> we're all being watched. I swear. Um, how important do you think is to i mean in this day and age currently where we are in our industry and how our industries evolved so much uh, like i said again you were quite lucky with yeah. the experiences that you had but how important do you think it is for a bartender these days to have to learn to use this, this equipment or or even understand it to, to be able not, to become successful 
not not at all important understanding okay. it is useful for the conversations right because yeah. as with any industry um networking who you know uh, the sort of relationships you have with people hugely important especially in terms of like people respecting sorry i'm trying to kill a fly but trying to <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, silent clapping <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Uh, just applaud yourself man it's fine it's fine <laughs> no no flies were hurt in the mating of making of this podcast uh, <laughs> but no so this, the short answer is knowing about roughly what they are and how they work and why you might want one is useful just for the conversations and, and lending legitimacy to knowing your stuff, basically. But needing one, absolutely not. There, It's completely show-off equipment that you do Fair. not need. Most of the time is not worth the money you pay for it. It's, you know... <sighs> What a rotavac is great for is allowing you to extract flavors from things that otherwise are really hard to get flavors from, basically. Um, And that means, yes, you can have the weirdest stuff on your menu. No one can beat the weirdness if you have a rotavac. That that gives (laughs) you access to maximum weirdness, right? That's cool, man. But the vast majority of consumers don't want weird. They want an espresso martini, a high five, and a friend for life. That's what they want in their bartender. So, yeah, I don't disagree yeah. with you, man. There's, yeah. there's a lot to be said about um, a good espresso martini or a good porn star yeah. martini. I mean, my my thing, I've, I'm sure I've said it in previous podcasts, but I'm still on it, um, the woo-woo. I'm championing Mate, the woo-woo. Did you ever uh, hear about my, my viral three-second woo-woo that Sam Bolton and I popularized no don't so I'm, back, I'm now interested yeah so back when uh, when Baldy was working for um for who was he working for what they're called now Ugh, names escape me love the love it's a fantastic company anyway can't remember what they're called because i'm <laughs> uh, but one of, one of one of the main kind of drinks distributors anyway uh, and they had a product called rankan can um, oh, yeah. so rank and i've used at the edge baston for years it's a it's a wine that's basically infused and it's, it's made from peaches in a nutshell from peach leaves really vibrant flavor and i love the stuff I, arches yeah, and yeah. lemonade like was it. one of my like you know one of those drinks you have malibu and coke and arches and lemonade are two guilty pleasures <laughs> um but yeah, so so we had we had um, obviously used that in the past at the, at the bar, and then Sam was working with this company, and our other friend Katie Rouse, who I'm sure you guys know from the it's the best bar in Birmingham right now, is Couch, and she's one of the owners of Couch, um, and basically she had this double Dutch cranberry tonic water, and oh, okay. I was employed for a consultancy somewhere to just like make some super easy spirit mixes or, or you know highballs, and I whacked in a double shot of Rankin Can and topped up with cranberry tonic water and jokingly named it the three second woo woo and then lo and behold some four or five years later as far as i'm aware from various consultancy gigs and other bits i've done over the over the last few years it's in over 300 venues across the country now <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> it tastes so crazy, good man. i'm gonna have to try it now so Mate, do. If although they've changed there, the tonic if anybody out there uh, has the ability to make me a three second woo woo and get it delivered to me contact me immediately because i am very interested in this yeah uh, no, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm definitely going to go for Oh, I'll just come and visit you and you can make me one. That'd be amazing. There you go, well. boom. <laughs> so, um, hey, Damien, man, do you, want, do you want to add anything? Yeah, no, so so obviously you, you wrangled your way to get the equipment into the bar, but it also you got a promotion as well then. Yes, it was a crazy time. Like every, every job change in my career has been kind of stressful and weird, but exciting at the same time. So like we mentioned the Jekyll and Hyde earlier, like the way, the way I got a job there 
was I took some family in. Uh, so I took my mum and my sister in to show them the place. You know, I was new to Birmingham, wanted to show off. Okay. Uh, took them in there, <laughs> yeah. being the big man. Oh, mate, look at Birmingham, right? Way better than Milton Keynes, Gov. Uh, <laughs> mum, why don't I show you upstairs? They've got this amazing gin parlour. Uh, they were closed, but, you know, cheeky chappy, little boy like me. Um, you look innocent, so you become a bit more cheeky. Uh, I snuck us into the little closed gin bar because it was just the door you had to push, you know, why not? Pushed yeah. away in, had a look at, just looked at the room. And then this person just burst through the door and started being like you can't be in here you can't be in here and like it was really like you can't be in here it's closed and we we're like okay we're, we're very nice thankfully quite a polite family we're like really sorry it's just me and my mum just wanted to show her this it's my favourite bar in Birmingham and the girl blushed like you've never seen her name's Catch one of my favourite people and she was like oh okay no it's totally fine like it's totally fine you don't even need to ask permission to be up here it's just that well oh, I don't even know I can tell you but I was down in the office I saw the CCTV I thought people were having sex upstairs it's like no that's me and my mum thank you <laughs> wow. Um, wow so that, that was that Sorry. job and then at the edge bastard like obviously i had the headhunts and that was amazing but with the promotion like there was this amazing guy there's two two guys that were kind of the lead the drinks lead drinks guys there so it was robert who's obviously gone on to do some amazing stuff in the midlands and my biggest kind of uh, i guess my biggest debt owed to a manager is is Matej shatlos who's now uh, working in hungary and copenhagen um but so rob, rob being robert wood rob wood and Mate Shatlos. so rob yeah, was the bar manager yeah. and Mate was the head bartender at the time shout out to robert wood there yeah and and big to Mate as well like anyone who just wants some of the best made cocktails ever find out where he's working at any particular moment and go to him like genuinely i've drunk some of the world's best drinks and he is my favorite bartender that's without, amazing like man. he's so good that's and so humble but he, um, yeah, so he, 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 those, those two, the two guys sadly fell out. Mate left. The head bartender role obviously became available. You must have um, a great deal of confidence to just step into that role and just kind of take ownership over it. And I think looking at your career, how you present yourself, you know, you do have a lot of confidence and uh, your ability, your capabilities really are warranted and it really shows through everything you've done at the level at which you do things as well. And the, as you were saying earlier about the attention to detail, Yeah. looking at the menu that you did at Nocturnal Animals and just, it was just so cleverly done, but so simple. Thank you, man. Yeah, man. I have to, yeah, I have to def- definitely agree with that. I mean, I, I uh, came down to Nocturnal Animals and one of the things that really that took me back, I mean, I, it did take me back actually but even though I was kind of prepared for it because I knew you were there was the service um and the way I mean you did you did the thing with the the Man City thing where you kind of like hired or like some of the the best bartenders that were around at the time and put them in one venue and and I mean what was it like for you to have to I mean let's let's be honest let's be realistic that many bartenders in one room that many good bartenders in one room uh, there's going to be a lot of ego kind of uh, flying around and you're all at a very similar age as well, albeit you're probably more experienced than they were. Um, yeah. How, how did you end up, uh, what was it like for you to, to kind of manage that, that dressing room, if you like, in, in football in terms? I mean, obviously, you're right. If any time you've got an A team, like, it's going to be tough. There's going to be some egos. There's going to be some, you know, debates about who should be doing what and, you know, why did that person get to do that and I didn't and all these sorts of things. Yeah. But for the most part, actually, like, I we, we 
I think we got about 300 applications for the for the role in total. Um, I interviewed 30 or 40 people and then we had 12 people come to the final day. Like we did a whole day of like, it made it really fun and we made sure that everyone had a great time, but we did a real set of challenges. Um, and I, so I was very confident we'd chosen people that had a good balance of personalities that would get along with each other, yeah. you know, all those sorts of things. Actually, it really wasn't that bad. There were a few minor ego issues, but I tend to be like, you know, much as I try and be friendly on these sorts of things, I'm kind of a harsh boss, to be honest. Um, like, I'll, I'll leave you to do your thing. I don't micromanage. But yeah. if you're not doing stuff, I will come down on you. And actually, I definitely made mistakes. And, and, and you know, we, there were was one, you know, a couple of members of staff that we did have to let go. But that happens sometimes. Yeah, you know? yeah that's fair. That's fair, man. But if you're pushing to be playing at the top of your game and you want to and want to be pushed to be one of the best and be recognized as that then I think you have to have the balance between the humility and being hard-nosed as well yeah uh, and I don't think there's a problem with um bartenders kind of niggling each other I think it's uh, a reflection of how successful they want to become as individuals but then how successful that team wants to become so so going back to what Damien was saying in respect to the, the menu itself so then you've then collected this group of human beings that are incredibly good at what they do you've managed to find a way to balance this team and obviously get them going in the same direction as as, as you want them to yeah how did you then because again i know what this is like you write a menu and regardless of what you think of that menu when you're not looking somebody's tweaking your drinks somebody is presenting your drinks in a very different way to what you originally decided to do it in Mm. so how did you how did you managed to balance that with the, with the team that you had well again um largely through discipline to be honest like not <laughs> not allowing that i had an amazing um i recruited a, a truly wonderful head bartender alice alice wakely who's now at balthazar um who, you know it was her first head bartending role there were you know of course there were things she struggled with but one thing that she's great at is she's like me very strict and and has got a good eye for spotting when people are not necessarily following specs i noticed i'm i'm like really like just have good eyesight for seeing if someone's like doing the right amount in a jigger when I'm judging comps or whatever. And I would always be around nocturnal animals and I know every single drink and I'd look at them and go, that is five mils over, pour it back in the jigger and see if I'm wrong. And it only takes a couple of times of someone having to pour a drink back into a jigger to then just trust me. Like, and thankfully they very quickly started to trust me. And we did during the training, we did loads of like demonstrations of how a 2.5 milliliter difference can totally change a drink. Right. So yeah. I would be like, you know, which of which of these drinks would you reorder? Which of these drinks would you would you have happily, but maybe never reorder or ne- get excited about? And actually, they might be the exact same drink, but with, you know, just a tiny difference amount of each ratio. And that really nailed down for the bar, the opening bar team. Like, actually messing with someone's specs isn't just like, oh, I'm cool. I've got a better palate than them, but potentially is completely undermining the guest experience. And we actually went through the full menu. Everyone approved the specs. I was like, right, I've spent a year developing this menu. You guys have all approved these as being literally perfectly balanced as far as you're concerned. Given that, why, what is the incentive to change the recipe? There isn't one. So, so for anyone out there running a team or leading a team and wanting to, write a menu and then pass that menu on to the team, what you'd say is to try and get that buy-in from the team first. To try yeah, and get yeah. them to... So rather than just talk about the drinks as they are and, oh, yeah, this is a really good drink, it's going to sell really well, really kind of get that team's buy-in to understand why you've created that particular drink in that particular way and yeah. what it means to the experience for the guest and what it means for the... Well, for the brand, I think, as well, because obviously menus are sometimes written, well, mostly, hopefully, written around the, the venue that you're inside. 
Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, there's, there's, it's totally fine in my opinion, as a manager for bartenders who have got experience. So we, we had a, like a tiered bartender system. So you had senior bartenders, bartenders, and, and kind of uh, barbacks effectively. Yeah. Um, and if you were a senior bartender, which most of the team were, like it was, it was just a pass a test. James, is ha- I do a palette test with them. I do a classics and a knowledge test and a bit of experience. And that means you're, you count as a senior for me. And basically, if you are a senior bartender, provided you communicate what you're doing to your guest, it's fine for you to change the specs on the on the menu. Because if you've, uh, okay. if you've had someone sat at the bar all evening and you've noticed that, God bless them, they love a properly dry, sour-style drink, right? So yeah. our daiquiri recipe is tailored for Joe Public. But Absolutely. actually, maybe an authentic daiquiri is, is a little bit drier or a little bit more acidic than what we do for Joe Public. So good on them if my senior bartenders go sorry mate actually the recipe we usually use is just, i think i think it's gonna be a little bit too sweet for you so i'm just gonna like bump down the uh, the sugar a little bit up a bit of the, the lime juice and and you're gonna be much happier as long as the key is they're communicating it they can change it yeah, yeah they yeah. need to make sure that that's been made clear so that the next time that guy comes in he knows to ask for that yeah, absolutely, man. That makes a lot of sense. Sorry, Damon, you were going to say, man. No, no, no. Just know the idea of education, not just for your own team, but for the public is, you know, is, is brilliant because sometimes customers don't really truly know what they want. So if you're able to yeah. tell them, that's, yeah, it's genius. Yeah, and I think for the most part, customers uh, know 99% of that, what they want. And the job of a bartender is to is to help them with the 1% in a way that they don't realize that you've done anything more. Do you know what I mean? So like they, they don't want to know that they've just, they, so they've said, I want a daiquiri. And as far as they're concerned, that's the decision. And they don't want to really, you, you definitely don't want a guest after that point to feel like you're having to draw more information out of them. You want it to flow really naturally. So turn it into a conversation. The, the best example is like a martini, right? Someone comes in, orders a dry martini. Like that could mean one of 30 different recipes. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. It could be, there's so many variations. Yeah. Um, um, but like you can turn it into fun so you can say oh are you feeling you know are you feeling more bond or more uh, i don't know come up with someone who likes i'm trying to think of someone famous that likes gin now but like are you feeling more more bond or, or more Clooney today and they say oh, what does that mean you say well bond drank it with vodka but the the, the real thing is with gin just like Clooney or whatever you know uh, and then and then you get that from them and it feels like you're you were mainly making a joke more than you were asking for their opinion so it's I, kind of when you again, just said I, i'm thinking of someone famous who likes gin what popped into my head was Peggy Mitchell. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> she definitely likes her gin. Um, I mean, what, and what's really interesting for me is that the people listening to, to this and what, what you've been saying about the education piece and, and talking to the consumer base about and what they want and how they want it and directing them. I think a lot of people listening would, in their minds, would say, yeah, that's obvious. I do that all the time. Um, but that, it, for me, it's little things like that that led you guys to become top 50 bars in the UK do you know what I mean it's and so I think if you're listening to the podcast it's probably easy to go yeah that's that's obvious that's really easy of course we do that that's what we do all the time but I think what you proved is um through that accolade is the consistency that if, mm. you, if you keep on top of it and and you do it in a way that you're delivering it to the consumer base in a way that's respectful to them yeah uh, and and it and uh, and it's not not too intimidating or not too overwhelming even um, that you can find that balance between guiding them through what it is that they want and what you think they want mm-hmm. um, uh, versus putting them off a drink completely. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But the menu was presented in a very clever way as well, from just having a base spirit and then having different serves 
short, long, and then colour coordinated as well. I mean, it was just a lot of thought and effort going into it. Maybe you could just explain a little bit more. Yeah, so I think really one of the things that has made a massive difference in my industry, and perhaps I'm giving myself more credit than, I'm, than I ought to, but I think one of the things that I've noticed about myself is that I tend to really focus on the big picture in almost all yeah. instances. I can, yeah. very, I'm, I can be very detail-oriented, but I, I prefer not to be. Um, and I think understanding the the narratives around things, the stories around things, the connections between things and the, and the philosophies that underpin the decisions that we make and the way that we do things is really the most important thing for being a good manager because when you have these principles that underpin everything, if you're not sure of the, the right answer, you can base it on those initial, what what is called in, in philosophy is first principles, right? That's the first yeah, thing we think of, so we yeah. follow the first principle. And and like I've got a whole, a whole variety of those, you know, I've got um, in my training documents, so it always, all of my trainings when I do consultancy and, and now in my current job, follow the same structure of what I call the holy trinity of a bartender or the holy yep. trinity of bartending. So you need to be the perfect host, uh, you need to make the perfect drinks and you need to give the perfect uh, experience or the perfect show. Um, so perfect drinks, you know, there's loads of training you can do around that, like understanding your classics, and all these different things, yeah, balance. Yeah, yeah. Then you can train them on the perfect show, right? That might be like how you look after people. That might be also like flaring and that stuff really matters. How you look behind a bar is as important to most consumers in cocktail bars as it, the drinks themselves are, right? Because they've chosen to go to a place where they well, see you making drinks. I think they have a perception, don't they? They have a perception yeah. of uh, depending on what venue they're in, what that person behind the bar should look like and what the person on the floor should look like and how they should behave no i completely but, but not just in terms of their dress i mean like in terms of also the show that they're giving like Absolutely, little bits yeah, of working flair like it, it adds to the experience but the final pillar that perfect host thing um what i would then finish by saying um in these training sessions is like okay well let's imagine that you really are the perfect drinks person right and you absolutely like you normally you just like nail your drinks and that's what makes you famous as a bartender that's what makes your career is that you just are the drinks guy but then you know you 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 make a a bad drink sometime um well you know you still it's fine as long as you're nice to people as long as you're still the perfect host you can recover that situation you just apologize you make them a new one you give it to them move on that's fine same with with your show right if you're flaring away and you you drop a tin and it make, makes a huge mess the great host which is that final point looks up at the crowd raises his hands in the air in, in celebration there's an over-exaggerated bow and, yeah. then, and then comically pretends to fall over on the thing they've just spilled so yeah. that's all again hospitality but if you are a bad host if you give someone a bad experience in any way it doesn't matter how good your drinks are it doesn't matter Absolutely. how good your flair is that person is not going to want to come back to talk to you again Talking about being the perfect host is probably the, the perfect leadway into talking about what you do now and it being very centered around Japanese culture. Because mm. uh, obviously being the perfect host is kind of key um, to to the way of life there. Yeah. Um, so if I, if I understood correctly, you went and did an apprenticeship over at Bar High Five? Yeah, so I was working at the Edge Bass and I've been there about five years. And at that point, I was like, you know, I've been here, kind of done everything that I feel like I can do here, had an amazing time. Um, and I was doing this PhD and I just had a whole load of stuff. Like I wasn't, I was hating my PhD, to be honest. I wasn't enjoying um, the culture of academia. Um, mm -hmm. I had just been dumped. Uh, obviously, that majorly affects your emotions and all sorts of other things were going on. And I just kind of felt really bad about everything. I was like, oh, I'm sick of this. I'm sick of Birmingham. I'm sick of everyone. I just hate the 
world. Uh, and so I was like, you know what? I've always wanted to go to Japan. I've been collecting Japanese whiskey for four or five years by that point. I was like, sod it. I'm going to go go to Asia. So I started looking at jobs in Asia, couldn't find anything in Japan. So I ended up finding a few things in Hong Kong and Singapore. And then a really great uh, friend of mine, a lady called Cherry, who works for Diageo now, uh, she texted me saying, Jay, like, I know, why are you looking in Hong Kong? I know you want to work in Japan. What the hell are you playing at? I was like, Cherry, I do, but I don't know anyone. And I don't know how to get a job in a place where I don't know anyone, don't speak the language, etc." And yeah. she was like, yeah, give me, a, give me a couple of days, see what I can do. Following day, uh, I'm I'm at work, uh, feeling pretty grumpy. Get a phone call from an unknown number, but we've obviously the Japanese calling card at the beginning of it, and I was like, mm, okay, that's interesting. Went out back to the I say smoking area, by which I mean next to the bins. Um, <laughs> went to the smoking area, took my call, and it's like, hello, who's this? And he goes, hello, is that James Falker? And I said, like, yep. It's like this is Wenusan from Bar High Five. You want a job? <laughs> I was like, uh, yeah, yeah, please. And he says, well. When do you want it? I was like, well, when when do you need me? I was like, as soon as better. I was like, okay, fine. Uh, how long do you need me? He's like, as long as you can. Okay, cool. Um, all right, I'll be there in two weeks. Phone down. That's amazing. Uh, quit, wow. quit my PhD, quit my job, um, told my family, organized my visa, booked my flights, and two weeks later, I landed in Tokyo. So where? So in the timeline, where are we now? What year are we in? Right, now? so where are we? So 2014, 2000, so this would be in 2018, 2000, yeah, 2018, uh, that I ended up there that's crazy i can't remember 2017 2018 i'm getting my years muddled what was it the biggest thing that kind of you you took from your visit to japan i appreciate it was on your kind of like so list much. Of places. yeah i mean yeah. i i as i say i'm obsessed with japanese whiskey always have been um and then so i got the chance to visit the vast majority of japanese whiskey distilleries i didn't go to uichi because that's like properly far away but most of the others that were operating so white oak um, even some of the less well-known ones fuji katemba had the chance to visit those which is insane up to my knowledge massively um, obviously mm-hmm. doing the apprenticeship you work from 10 a.m till 5 a.m six days a week unpaid so it's properly intense work but the flip side is you're learning really from the very best in the business and what's the apprenticeship so what was the apprenticeship on so the apprenticeship is just a bar apprenticeship and it's, it okay. looks very, very different for every single member of staff that, or every single person that does this because it all very yeah. much depends on your relationship with Wainer-san and, and with Kaori-san, his head bartender, who is terrifying. And <laughs> actually, like, she's the bit that most people struggle to get past because if, if you don't respect her and you don't, you know, because I think um, it's very difficult, really difficult for a small, slim uh, woman in Japan still to this day, sadly, to achieve that caliber of success within the bar industry. It's, it's, it's changed a bit, to be honest, in the last yeah. five years, but it's no, the UK is still struggling with gender in the bar industry and Japan is much further behind even than that. So mm. a lot of apprenticeships, apprentices rather, don't, yeah. I think, make, make maybe have the best relationship with her and don't, they come in with the ego and they don't respect how hard it has been for her to get to that position. And actually that she needs to be given as much respect as Wainasan. They see her as just like, Oh, she's just the head bartender. Wainasan's the man. And so I was really lucky that we got on really well, her and I, and I was really respectful of her and she taught yeah. me so, so much. And the amazing thing about a bartender apprenticeship in Japan is that really you're not allowed to do anything. Like you're not, you clean, you, if you're lucky, you get to talk to a guest. I was really lucky that, 
you know, they could see that I was a hospitable person. So I was great at talking to the guests. And then you just watch and observe and you ask questions. So you have a notebook on you at all times. You get gifted a notebook at the beginning and you have to just write, write, write all the questions. You get to the end of the shift. You ask Kaori-san. And the mind blowing thing is that whatever the smallest detail, the, the most pedantic thing you noticed and didn't understand, she'll not only remember that, but she'll tell you the exact set of decisions the decision matrix that led her to doing it that way and it could be something like i'd be like you know kerry san like earlier in the evening someone ordered a manhattan with you and later in the evening they did as well and you made them totally different both times and as far as i'm aware you've never met these people before so you don't know what their preferences are like (laughs) what went into that and then she'd explain it and you'd be like well, holy wow. cow, that makes sense, <laughs> right? Like that was that all is. of that made sense. She'd be like, oh yeah, no, obviously this time of day, like it was, it's much warmer and there was a guy smoking a cigar. So I used a more intense, I used a more intense vermouth than last time because that was going to balance with the atmosphere of the room. And you're like, oh. <laughs> wow. Well, I, the, reason I, the reason I asked at the beginning uh, about what you took away from your experience in Japan, because I think it's probably what led um, Damien to ask the question in the first place when you were talking about philosophies. Yeah, um, oh, man. Your holy trinity. So I guess the reason I asked the question was because I was curious as to are these philosophies are something you've always had in you or was that an influence of, of your your experiences out in Japan? Is that something you brought back with you? Then? Yeah, I mean, it, the philosophies, so well, I, it's hard, like Japanese philosophies are really complex field so my, yeah. my, my under my degrees were all in uh, politics philosophy and economics basically it was international relations and various other speculations oh, okay. that through different masters and so on um, but basically uh, philosophy was a big part of my undergrad so I was always interested in ideas like ideas I've always loved how they how you could convince people persuade people change the, an entire perspective on the world just with yeah. ideas you know um and then going to japan you kind of learn about them and then embrace them or not and for me i just embrace so many different ideas and concepts that underpin japanese culture and i talk about them all the time now working for Santori. like i'm not going to do it today because there's too many and it would take ages <laughs> but like things like kaizen which means constant improvement or yugen which is beauty and subtlety and mystery or like Omotanashi, the kind of concept of, of hospitality. So there's so, so I'm many. Just gonna, I'm just going to jump in on this, actually, because we are going to touch on um, how you're kind of getting through lockdown and quarantine in a bit. But in respect to the back of what you're just talking about there, for those listeners out there, you've got your own Instagram live channel, I guess now, isn't it, really? Uh, in which yeah. you talk about these philosophies like further. I've, I've actually, as you know, I've, I listen in on these. And they're, for, those, for those of you that are listening, uh, they're genuinely really interesting um, and it's not just about Japanese whiskey and alcohol but I, I really get a lot out of the, the philosophy and the ideas behind what goes on so for those of you that are listening that are into philosophy or want to get closer to the idea of that Japanese philosophy I'd, I would recommend the, the the I mean how often do you do your um, Instagram so it started the it started during lockdown eight weeks ago as being thought of the days and they I must admit they've become less frequent because I'm now doing so much filming for various websites and stuff that actually yeah, yeah. editing all of this, it takes time. Um, but I'm posting as often as possible and yeah, follow me, James Balker drinks. The other thing that I'm doing that's, that's if you're really interested in this stuff, if you work in the on trade as a bartender or chef or smelly or whatever, um, that we're doing a thing called the lockdown lessons. So it's a full week training module whilst we've all got loads of time on our hands. So we do an hour yeah. every day, Monday to Thursday on different topics surrounding the world of Japanese booze. So it's not, Suntory based it's just generic whiskey and spirits knowledge to do with Japan and then on the Friday we do a little exam and all of this stuff is covered in in fairly 
fairly comprehensive detail. In that's really course. cool, man. We'll probably stick that in our bio for you so people can follow no, you on that. It's all free, don't but worry. I, I, do, uh, <laughs> I do have a question for you. I mean, we've obviously covered your career mm. um, in, the, in the bars and obviously your travel over to Japan and everything else. But for me personally, I, I did have a question for you. Um, why, why world class? Why world class? So I did uh, context behind Rube's question. For those that don't know me, I've done it three times, been in the top three for the UK each of those times, according to the judges. But I feel like everyone gets told that. So <laughs> we'll see if that's true or not. Um, but yeah, so world class for me in Birmingham. So Birmingham, like whilst it has an amazing bar scene, it's actually exploded the last few years, even since even since the Edge Baston. Yeah, um, and truly an awesome bars in Birmingham. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, particularly a couch couch is blowing my mind i really like couch um, oh man i need to go there you do so need, sorry, like, and it's you guys are listening i'm so sorry i've not been seeing it's yet. it's one of those that until you get the train from the city center of Birmingham, you don't realize how easy it is like it's a two pound 50 train and it takes less than 15 minutes to get to the bar from the city center so it's okay, so easy helps. like don't get a bus don't get a taxi uber will take longer than getting the train like the trains wow. come every 10 minutes just hop on it it's like a tube and you're next and next thing you know you're in bourneville but oh, um cheers, man. Thank you. but yeah the great thing about world class uh for me was that in it's, it's it's quite hard to get to know everyone in the in the global in the wider bar scene globally when you're not based in the capital cities if you're not in london yeah. if you're not in edinburgh it's, it's quite a hard thing to penetrate and so I, it was always the case that obviously competitions are a fantastic way to to do that and i started doing competitions quite intensely uh like i did just a shed load of them and that works for some people it doesn't work for others it brings out some good qualities in a bartender it also i think it brings out some really bad qualities in most bartenders but it does teach you a lot and i noticed that almost all of the real like learnings that i was i was developing in my career were coming yeah. as a consequence of entering a competition and challenging myself to do something a little bit differently to how we do it in the bar and what i knew about world class is not only was it the highest possible caliber well the great thing about high caliber is you're going to learn from the other competitors the vast majority of things i was learning was because i'd see someone beat me and be like god damn it i came second yet again i came second <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. for um over 20 cocktail com national cocktail competition finals in a row became known as the bridesmaid by my colleagues uh, and then when i finally <laughs> won my first uk cocktail comp uh, the drink was called finally the bride uh, so there we go but no oh, wow. world class it was just a case if they offered education alongside what they do the experience itself is specifically supposed to push you to learn the next trend like stuff that's not happening yet yeah, yeah. and then also because the high caliber i knew that i would necessarily be learning from the people i was up against and and then when i started doing well i got the taste for it basically yeah, and, man, no, and no, i wanted to bloody well win <laughs> i can see why but you're right though regardless of what it is that you do in life and regardless of where you are if you surround yourself even if you're playing fifa on yeah. the xbox if you play with people that are better than you and you surround yourself with people that, that, that are better than you, then you're going to have to lift your game. You're going to get some experience. You're going to like pick up some little tricks of the trade that you, you weren't aware of. No, I completely get that, man. Um, so I, I kind of wanted to talk to you about like cocktail competitions as a whole. So for yeah. those younger bartenders that, that are coming through, or even, even bartenders that, that have been in the industry for a while that are thinking about entering comps, why should they and why shouldn't they? So... I, I think you should. I think everyone should do at least one comp in their time yeah. and ideally at least at least one every six months or so just to keep you fresh, just to like introduce you to new people because yeah. you, you'll get stuck in, no matter where you are, you'll get stuck in some sort of a clique of, of people. And with, sadly within bartending, our cliques tend to have a set, a tunnel vision, a set of ideas and, and they just, <laughs> you know, it ends up like on Facebook where you just see the same things all the time. Yeah. Um, so it's great for just broadening your horizons and seeing what's out there. It's great for the connection side of things in the industry, like meeting, like the judges 
many of the best connections I've made has been because I've done what I've impressed a judge at a competition. Like yeah. even if I've not won, they've still been impressed. Another thing that I've learned in comps, for example, like I shan't name drop, but one of the really successful drinks journalists, um, basically after a year or two of me doing loads of competitions, she noticed that I was like quite gutted after not winning a co- yet again, coming second in the competition. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she came over and she was like, so, um, just so you, so I can see, I know I can see what's going on. I can see why you're upset. And I've obviously judged you in loads of comps this year, but I just wanted to say like, I'm not just saying this, you've been my favorite competitor uh, for the last few years and the reason that is is consistency like you don't win because fine you're not exactly what the brand wanted remember that comps are run by brands like you're not yep. what they were looking for you also look about 12 years old and if they want to put you on a poster you have to look over 25 and all these other things just like look just because you never won the, the winners are the ones the brands want to employ or want to work with you've come second over and over and over and over again. You've shown consistency in terms of making good looking and delicious drinks. And for me, that matters more. And that's why I've nominated the Edge Baston for all these awards. And then I was like, that clicked, that made sense. Not about winning. It's never about winning. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, man. I think that might be helpful for a few people. Um, But cocktail competitions, I mean, you've obviously entered... Uh, well, yeah, probably two of the best in the world, isn't it? World class, and then there's Legacy is probably the other one. That's it, really. Mm. Um, but we'll delve into world class a little further. But I do have a question in respect to local cocktail competitions. Yeah. Now I, I've been thinking about this, and I think about a lot of random stuff all the time. Um, and I kind of wondered what you thought about local comps that we do um, and the way they're formatted. So for me, um, what happens is. And this is the the current format is that you'll get a local comp, a brand will turn up and it's a small comp. Um, so you're not, you're not entering for a, a major national or anything like that. Mm. And then what, what the brief is normally is create a drink um, with our brand and come up with some original idea. Now, for me, I, I think on one level, it's great that you're promoting the creativity. That's great. But I also think actually, why are local comps not focusing on classics? Because if you're, because part of a competition isn't just about, coming up with a, an original drink or the creativity, but it's also about presentation. So for me, if we use our local comps to practice how to present the drink and how to, to come across and the stories, but if we use classic cocktails to do that for the smaller comps, and that way I'm, it's a twofold thing. Not only am I having to research the classic and then go away and do that, but I'm also getting to practice in an environment with my peers mm-hmm. on how to present my drink. Cause sometimes you can walk into a competition, have the best drink in inverted commas, but your presentation wasn't as good. And that that's obviously what it's about when you're being employed. Cause like you say, these brands are looking for their future brand ambassador, whatever it may be. And then, and then once you've kind of got your head around um, the presentation part, when you do go for the bigger uh, comps, what you're not then doing is coming up with an original cocktail, walking into these larger comps and somebody goes, actually that's a twist on a classic that you've just created there it's on this it's inspired. because you're already aware of the classics and i think that's something that i think the industry we could be breeding a new set of bartenders on how to present yeah but also helping them understand what where these drinks are coming from and and the basis and the brands could really help within that yeah um i kind of wanted to throw that out at you because yeah see how you feel what you think of that so i think it's really interesting i think it's really important that we have as a as a peer group as a set of people in our industry we're, we're constantly self-critiquing uh, i think that's yeah. vital um yeah. 
personally, local comps for me are, are like one of the best things that, that happens in each city. I, I love yeah. to see local comps. I love to get involved with local comps where I can. I, I get so many requests. And for those of you that are listening going, you ain't responded to my Facebook message about coming to judge my comp yet. <laughs> totally fair enough. Uh, I, will, yeah, I have yeah. definitely responded because I always respond. Uh, but, you know, it's just, it's just hard to, to, to do everything all the time. But they are so important. And I think the key with a local comp is to remember that if – the, the people that are entering those local comps will probably be a bit newer to the industry, as you're saying. Absolutely. Um, it's important that there is a creative element there because that's basically what encourages people to go along. Like that's why they, people are there because they want to win. They want to show off their creativity. One difficulty I see with just doing it on classics is that like the, the recipe for classic is always open to negotiation. So every, yep. every, it doesn't matter if you went really strict on a classic comp, it would still open be open to twisting and therefore it still kind of is the same. So for me, the, the, the challenge isn't so much about, is it about entirely being creative or entirely being classics? I think I, I really like competition structures that say, you know, maybe it's based on this classic, maybe it's based on whatever you want it to be, but we yeah. want you to explain as part of your brief the consumer that this is intended to sell to and why it would be something that person would enjoy right um, and it's not something you see it's something i always do now that i'm doing comps for suntory is i literally have a section of points for did you gp the cocktail well and who is the intended market for this drink so it's t- teaching bartenders about the business side of being and understanding because one of the reasons that i got pissed off with my managers and in the edge bastard and elsewhere was i would have this cool creative idea that i know damn well tasted amazing looked great etc even perhaps was cheap to make and my manager would say no and I was like dude what like what why um and it only was years later that it dawns on me that well obviously there was no consumer for that like there's no point putting a mezcal negroni on the menu that's made with uh, ants because let's be honest now no one's going to touch that right um, so <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know so so that's a really big side of it and I think the other key side of it that is m- the biggest problem um is a, a greater focus on feedback and that's across the board. That's not just in local comps. Oh my comps, gosh, yeah, I completely agree, man. It's the whole reason. So with the dojo program that I've spent the last year developing for Suntory globally, like I was actually asked to set up a global cocktail competition for that and I refused. Um, and not, you know, it wasn't an argument. They didn't go, oh, you have to yeah, do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the, you know, my, my idea was there's, there's too many already. And most of them, the reason we've been put off is because we, we as bartenders invest tons of time effort and money into doing these things and actually the brand gives zero hoots they're there to see that you put that on your specials menu so you do some volume for them and they want to recruit you know do some social media and recruit a brand a brand ambassador and they never ever they always promise every time i'm going to give you the best feedback and then you come to the end of the comp the judges are professionals that have been paid for X amount of time and want to head back home, or the judges have just drunk 12 cocktails and are drunk and therefore incapable of giving you good feedback, or the judges just are bored of talking to bartenders and want to go and party. You never, ever get that quality of feedback, and that is really problematic for me. That's, something one, of the, that's one of the most honest, yeah, that's one of the most honest responses um, I've had for a while, so thank you for that. I really appreciate that, man, and, and you're absolutely not wrong because – when you think back to a lot of these drinks that we've created in comps, that we've both been in comps, where are those drinks now? Where are those photos? If I wanted to build a CV for myself, I've got no proof that I was there or did it really, do you know what yeah. I mean? in some occasions. Um, yeah, so that 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 is really frustrating. And I think that's one of the reasons that I didn't um, set up comps when I, when I was a, a brand ambassador or when I was representing some brands. I had a lot of people approach me and say, actually, that's a really cool brand. Can we set up a comp? And... I'd walk away from that com- uh, conversation going, nah, 
no, no, because it, it, for all of the reasons that you've just said. Yeah. Um, and I, I couldn't agree with you anymore, man. It's nice that someone else out there thinks the same way. Yeah, and, and that cool. also answers the world class thing because they gave that great follow up care. Like the not the judges, to be fair, the judges were generally not great at giving feedback. But your local rep for world class would always like take notes for you and give you that feedback. So I had a guy called um, I had various people throughout the years, but they all just gave this amazing. Like Joe in particular, just gave me the most brilliant feedback after world class that allowed me to realise those were the mistakes I made. Don't be upset anymore. So um, you you touched briefly on the dojo. So at mm. the start of the year, there was a really big campaign, some videos. You were teasing people, getting people ready for this. Yeah. Um, so obviously we touched upon that you joined Centauri May last year as the UK brand ambassador. Yeah. Uh, obviously to promote the brands uh, to the bar. But what was, what was the dojo and how was that going to address some of these issues that you felt... Um, we're missing. Yeah. So basically what it came from is obviously Suntory, um, you know, it's a super premium whiskey company. Our stock is getting rarer and more expensive. Like we, we try and keep the prices flat, but every year the retailers put them up and it's a really tough world for Japanese whiskey right now. So I was taken on to basically be the guy to reintroduce, um, a bit of a kind of fun and vibrancy and education into this, into this side of things for Suntory. Um, and one of the big challenges they had for me is they said, look, you know, all of these, we, you know, we are a big brand now, Frank like we don't have tons of money that's one thing we, we don't have like <laughs> beam Suntory is big for its brands but we spent all of our money buying those brands and working with those brands you know mccallan doesn't come cheap lafroig doesn't come cheap so um they said look we don't have tons of money to do the things like legacy or world class and stuff like that but we do want to do something that is just just like game changing just like a proper world leader in terms of what it's able to do for the bar industry and my response to that was say okay well, well what, what does that mean to you like what is your motivation and they were like well you know every single competition it always has the same motivation which is to two, twofold drive volume and drive awareness and, and popularity within bartenders yeah, yeah. right yeah. and i was like okay so how effective are cocktail competitions at driving volume and we're very lucky we've had a big ter- turnover of staff in the last five or six years because we've modernized as a company we've got a lot of members of senior management from diageo from Pernod ricard and so on and all of these people have great experience with all of their rare, various comps and they all said none of these things drive volume like there's loads of ways we claim they do and we try and make sure that people put on specials menu but they don't they don't work and yeah. and i said okay I, I agree and i also think that actually many of these comps are kind of annoying people now actually they're not you know it's, it's more of a disappointment the experience than actually what you expect it i know multiple of people who've done some of the biggest comps in the world the last couple of years they've entered it with huge hopes having seen amazing youtube footage of what it's like to take part and then had a really bad experience so i said actually for me um what 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 what, a comp- what this should be is giving something back to the bartender community like they give us so much in terms of sales and love and everything and like Absolutely, we we man. cannot survive well, it's not true we can actually it turns out since coronavirus we don't turns out we don't need <laughs> it on trade it's the supermarkets actually no we really do um so it matters <laughs> um and as a consequence i was like let's just provide the the thing that people want from japan which is knowledge because that you know that is really the, the the kind of the top tier of perfectionism within bartending. You know, it's it's the it's the Michelin Michelin guide of bartending Japan. Really, yeah, you know, it's not one. quick. It's not the most efficient. It's not you know. There's lots of problems. It's not the most creative. But 
you will learn things the best possible way. So the theory with Dojo is it's a year long training program for people that want to level up. And there's three tiers, you know, you could be on the initial, the main tier of the Dojo where there'll be tours from myself. I'm traveling the country. I'm working with Japanese legends, Wenisan and Kishisan to create educational material that I can teach across the country and bringing that Japanese mastery direct to people's venues. And then there's a middle tier, which gets even more exciting because those two masters, uh, so Wenisan, my old boss, and, and his his original, the guy that trained him, Kishisan, they're coming over two times a year, beginning at the end of this program, to host day-long training sessions with only up to 30 people max per session. So it's a proper one-to-one, in-depth you know, detailed Japanese training. And then as well as that, in that middle tier, people get loads of other things with me again, local trainings. And then the very top tier, it's just 20 handpicked, really passionate people about Japan, like just bartenders I know, I like, hand-selected, not bullshitting around like, oh, it's totally fair entry. And then you look at the results, you're like, that wasn't fair entry. You're just lying to us. I've been very upfront. We've handpicked them because they're people that have done lots for us as a company and we've never given anything back to. Let's take those 20 bartenders. Each one of them selects one classic cocktail. And we spend a whole year working with Wena-san and Kishi-san developing and refining those classic cocktails because that's the Japanese style, the Kaizen, constant improvement, getting 20 drinks to the most perfect version they can be over the course of a year that's as really, a community. Really cool, that's amazing. Mate. Yeah, so if anyone's interested in that, how do they get a hold of you for it? Um, so of course there's the website um, which is, uh, I think it's uh, suntorydojo.com um, but obviously what, what's going on with coronavirus right now? Uh, most of my budget has gone down the drain and it's all gone really difficult <laughs> yeah, because fair. we've had to cancel the flights of these guys and it's it's really, really sad. But we are still making it happen. It, we'll see when we re-begin the program. Um, but as I say, the lockdown lessons are free and they're on Facebook. So just add me on Instagram, Facebook, and we'll sort it out. That's really cool, man. We're going to put all that in the, uh, uh, in the bio when we're over. But I do, I mean, we're talking about comps still. Um, so I kind of wanted to go backwards a little bit and 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 talk to you about the world class because obviously we talked a little bit more about <laughs> go for it. Um, we um, he's just pulled out a bottle of Japanese whiskey for those that don't don't know. Well, I've um, got all the expensive shit out for the interview, and, and we haven't <laughs> yeah. talked about it. So I'm just going to silently drink a Biki Twenty One. Oh yeah, you, you never oh, ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I never treat. So this is, the company didn't give me this. This is my own bottle. But it's just oh, like well. because I've only got t- like a two fingers left. I never touch it. Sorry, well, we, I interrupted we, you. We could talk about it another time. We also have a Japanese whiskey in our portfolio as well. Nice. Um, I'm just throwing that out there. But in respect to, to, to world class, um, I mean, you talked obviously about coming second uh, in a lot of the competitions that you, you were in and always being a bride. But talk to us about world class, when, where you eventually finished and how long it took you to get to that point. I don't think we actually really talked about that. Yeah, so it was kind of the same all three years, which is really annoying because it doesn't really show that much development. <laughs> but so year one I entered was, uh, what, 2015, I think. Yeah, it would have been okay. 2015. Um, entered, didn't basically anticipate to get through any stages. I just wanted to, because the first stage is basically once you've got to the top 100, I wanted that, I wanted to be in the top 100. Once you get to that point, a judge comes to your bar, you taste it, you create an experience for them and they give you properly comprehensive feedback. And yeah, yeah. that that was the bit I was after. So I did that um, and it just went really, really well. Um, like 
so much better than I expected. Um, had an amazing time of it. Had one of my favourite people in the world, Colin Dunn, come and judge me. Along oh, with uh, Dan, Dan Dove, who remains a very, like, we collaborate. We work yeah. together all the time now on Suntory projects. So these guys came, gave me that feedback. I then somehow made it through, couldn't believe it. Went to the semi-finals, which was this whole tough thing that we discussed earlier. We had a whole written exam on spirits and blind tastings, yeah. all sorts, really, really tough. Again, I was just there to learn like genuinely just there to learn. And somehow like I cried because when they announced my name of going through to the top 10, I was like, what? <laughs> what just happened? Fair, that's a fair reaction to have. That is a fair reaction. I mean, I was, I was 22 years old. I was new to bartending. Um, I was yeah. not at all someone I expect that you'd expect to get through. And everyone was shocked. Like, don't get me wrong. The panel that year, there was, you know, truly insane bartenders. And yeah. they were as surprised as I am because I shouldn't have been in that final. Um, but every year well, since, I would get <laughs> the same. Yeah, I would be just as nervous because obviously once you've achieved something, you don't want to do worse the following year. You don't want to get to the finals year one and only the semifinals year two. And uh, I was just really, really lucky every year to to sneak it into that top bit and get really great feedback. But I never quite managed to – I made it I, – I know what mistake I made in the last one and it was a foolish mistake. So, hey-ho. So what, so what would you uh, – what advice – would you give to to any bartenders out there that are listening that might want to take part in world class and mm. and what advice would you give them to to get as far as they possibly can? Is it is it as hard as they they say it is? Um, I mean. I think it is. I, I actually genuinely, I know a lot of people yeah. get uncertain about like fairness and whether it's all marketing and nonsense and it's all, you know, whatever. I think yeah. a, it's a very fair competition. Like I do genuinely think they have a set of points and it, there's no nonsense around that, which, you know, yeah. I think that's, that's really valid in a comp- competition, not to, not to make those judgments. And um, I think the, the really great thing, the best best piece of advice I could do is, is to keep it simple, actually, because the thing about world class is all world class is very much about being a the top of the world, obviously being the best in the world. Yeah. But it's also about pushing future trends, and as a consequence of that, people over prioritize the importance of being seen to be doing the most creative, the most innovative, cutting edge, exciting stuff because they know that's going to be a differentiator. It's going to get the attention of the judges. The problem is that oftentimes the most innovative stuff hasn't been sufficiently well explored yet by yourself or indeed by the wider industry and your drinks suffer as a consequence. They don't taste as well balanced Uh, because, you know, the first people that did fermentation, I remember when the guys at uh, the Lion team first started doing that, the first fermented Lion cocktails I had, I didn't love. I genuinely thought they were horrible. And that's because we hadn't got good at fermentation (laughs) at that stage. It was an everything that was new to all of us. So keep it simple. Stick with stuff that you genuinely know um, would be my best advice. That's cool, man. No, thank you. I really appreciate that. So um, talking about, obviously, the lockdown and quarantine, Damien, I know you've got some questions about COVID-19 there for James. Well, I'm surprised that it, it really has taken us over an hour to <laughs> really address the, the elephant in the, in the podcast. What'd you call me? <laughs> um, I know Centauri, well, when it all kind of kicked off on Facebook, you were asking a lot of questions of people. You were doing a lot of things behind the scenes and i know as a company you were trying to do what you could to help the industry yeah um but i think the one thing that's very visible is the well-being packs that you guys have provided yeah uh which obviously great support um again for those that maybe have not come across it um just let the listeners know what a company you've done to try and help those 
during this kind of horrible time. Yeah. So this is a collaboration with the uh, the Whiskey Exchange, uh, which is an online retailer that I'm sure most of us know, and Speciality Drinks is the exact same owner. Um, so yeah. Edgington Beam Suntory, which is the UK version of Suntory, basically partnered with them. Um, we're really lucky that Sekinda, who's the owner of that company, is a really, really great friend of ours. And he has a lot of contacts in his, I think, his family business around kind of cash and carries um, in the kind of, you know, mainly in the kind of Indian market and stuff. So they have amazing access to things like rice and spices and stuff like that. So um, we basically worked with him to get stock direct from wholesalers, uh, create fantastic well-being packs, and we just sent those out free. I think we sent out in the end like sixty or 70,000 packs. Uh, wow. Is, yeah. That's incredible. That's incredible. And it's funny, again, in episode three, we talked about Indian hospitality. Yeah. Um, and now we talk about it with the Japanese as well and all these two things coming together to serve the good of people. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a great thing. It's, it's, it's really nice. I mean, I mean I've, I'm on the phone constantly to people like yourselves and everything, and I'm so like chuffed genuinely with how much everyone's looking out for each other like not only are we all you know staying pretty strong i think most industries people are staying pretty strong at the moment we've got that blitz spirit but it's actually the level of pastoral support that people are offering each other supporting their colleagues etc i'm just i'm genuinely so my, my heart is so warmed by what i'm seeing <laughs> yeah it's uh, lovely there has, there has been some amazing stuff out there and um, I'm not going to do it on this, but I'm, I'm always trying to shout out as many people as I can. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, on my personal social media. Um, but right, man, I mean, uh, like the time has gone. Hasn't it, it has. That is, yeah. That man. is absolutely flame by. We've got a couple of things for you, James. All right. Um, so we, we have a, a couple of segments, a few games that, that we like to, to play. Yeah, yeah. Um, cool. So I'm not very good at being uh, fun, but I'll do my best. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know You've been awesome, mate. You've been really good, yeah. really good so far. Um, so where, where do you want to where do you want to start, Damien? Um, well, I've, I've been meaning to squeeze us in when we were talking about uh, the venues you've worked in. So, obviously, with my background in music, um, we always ask a question about openings, opening tunes. Yeah. Um, when you're starting a shift yeah. to kind of get people going, to get yourself going, and it could even be getting yourself ready for the comps as well. If there's a song that gets you in the right frame of mind, yeah. uh, what would be on the first track on your playlist when opening up so opening up excuse me I just hiccups myself there um op- op- <laughs> opening up uh, there's the two, two big songs for me and it's just whatever happens to come first on my iphone um the, uh, the one that started my career was Superstition by Stevie Wonder. Um, sure, I've been playing guitar right. for 20 years or so now, so it's uh, crikey that I should be better than I am. <laughs> but yeah, so that was always the song that I play on my guitar and it just always has got me going. So I used to play it every morning kind of school, before school, that kind of beautiful and it's just like a brilliant riff that one and then uh sam bolton and i both got super into hooked on a feeling so sam shout out uh, vanguard bar amazing amazing bar but yeah hooked on a feeling from uh from guardians of the galaxy was the other one and and then closing down so finished a a long shift you're you're cleaning up the, the the one if I'm trying to communicate to my staff uh, or colleagues I should say uh, was always Africa so Africa is everyone's everyone knows that James is wanting things to shut down uh, basically because I had an old colleague called Dom at the Edge Baston that used to play that <laughs> and 
it stuck with me basically i adopted it from dom but then on a, if yeah. i'm if i'm running a small venue which oftentimes i love to do if you guys have both seen some of the smaller bars that i've done um yeah. i often really i love chet baker so if you guys know chet baker but there's one called my funny valentine and i i every time i go abroad i try and find some reason to end up singing that with an open mic, mic night or something so it always just brings back memories cool. of traveling which is a lovely that's, way to that's also close really down. cool man well um for those for those people that are listening um as we've already said before we're putting together the mixology collection podcast spotify uh playlist so we're going to be adding all of our guests open to the open playlist and obviously all the songs that they want for the close to the close playlist nice um so that's that's the music stuff done i've, I've got a question for you re- around around drinks man all right um apparently that's my thing all right um what's don't know your... who said that no no you're absolutely right man no one really knows what i do um what um, of all the original drinks that you've created, yeah. um, what's your most memorable and why? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> three second, three second. Uh, <laughs> no, I think, I mean, I, I couldn't answer. Like, there's there's so many that have, have been a big deal for me, on a, like on a personal level, if that makes sense. I think the one that's, um, like I've had the most emotive moment with uh, so it was yeah. actually one of my world class entries so I did an entry where basically um, I'd invite someone to choose like to choose a, a person they care about um, yeah. so I wrote on a I wrote I'd written on like pieces of paper all these different names so like mum would be one of them uh, my brother my sister my partner etc etc and I got the judge to say a name and I pulled it out and the recipe I'd made and I'd made a recipe for that connection in each of my lives so one inspired by my mum, one inspired by my dad and so on. And he chose one for his mum. And I made him this cocktail, which was, you know, gin. Uh, it was, I can't, to be honest, I can't really remember everything that was in there. There was some gin, there was some champagne. There was like a, a grass distillate, and a few other bits and bobs, elderflower. And it was just, it reminded me of sitting and chilling out with my mum in the garden because that was what we used to do as kids. And it was, for me, it's just a really emotive drink. And then he drank it, he loved it. And then I noticed as I was kind of finishing our chat that he was like, like, like seriously emotional, like, you know, uh, yeah. tearing up. And I was like, oh, um, you know, are you okay? Like, if I, is there, is, if I, have I hurt you somehow? And he was like, no, 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 it's just, like, you don't know this. And it's, you know, there's no reason for you not to know this, but my mum passed away a few weeks ago and I have the exact same memory as you. And this drink, like, it's just wow. perfectly captured that. Uh, and he, he was like, I haven't had a chance to chat too much to people about it because my work and I have to be professional. And this is a great way of grieving with you. And I was like, that was such a, and like, yeah. we were friends anyway. And that was just such a, a raw conversation. And the fact that it yeah, was inspired man. just by some silly drink I'd made was really meant a lot to me. No, that's powerful, though. I think that really encapsulates um, what's going on right now when people talk about what do venues mean to them and what what does that relationship with their bartender and their drinks mean to them and i think that story really encapsulates what we're kind of missing right now mm. uh, during the quarantine and lockdown that's a that's a beautiful story man I'm, you've got me yeah. emotional <laughs> <laughs> but we've got to move on yeah let's do it Hit me <laughs> with the I'll, 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 be, I'll be fun i'll be fun remember <laughs> yeah that, thanks for that man <laughs> so what next so- so we got the speed round. Oh, sugar. Uh, yeah. I, uh, that's always been my worst round. <laughs> <laughs> so you've, you've listened to the podcast before, so you kind of got an idea of what's going to happen. Well, no, because um, when was the last episode, Ruth? <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> I can't point. remember and what that happens in the speed yeah, round. All right, that's a fair point. We're back now, though. Um, <laughs> I'm killing so it. This is so much fun. Get, um, we're going give, to give you 30 seconds. Right. I'm going to give you two options, uh, and then you just pick 
the option that, that you prefer. Oh, sweet. Um, Easy. And that's it. We're going we're to have some music playing in the background. Damien's going to take care of that for us. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what we're going to get a countdown from Damien. And then we get thirty seconds. All okay? right. And then all you all you're gonna do is just give me give me the your, your <laughs> I'm, I'm nervous, Ruth. I know what you're like. <laughs> <laughs> Some of these might are obviously there to trip you up. Yeah. But um, okay. So you can you can tell we haven't done this for a while. So here we go. So give us the countdown there, Damien. So three, two, one, go. Blanco, Reposado, and Ajo. Blanco. Short, long. Short. Shaken, stirred. St- uh, shaken. Classic twist. Classic. Cats, dogs. Dogs. How many members in the A-team? In the A-team? Four? I don't yeah. know. <laughs> Yamazaki or Hakushu? Hakushu. Muddler, spoon, strainer? Spoon. Text message, call? Call. Summer, winter? Summer. Nice. You did nice. really well there, there man. We yeah, you've done really <laughs> good. Um, and I think you were right about the A-team. Um, but it's actually five, but I'll let you off. With, with I was counting it. myself as one of them because I'm obviously Mr. T. Look I, at me. Nah, if this I, face I, I, doesn't I, say Mr. T, nah. I did it. <laughs> oh, nice! I like it. I like it. Um, that's that's it, man. I think we're gonna we're gonna wind down. But this is our this is our first um, podcast of the quarantine. How did that go for you, Damien? Nice to be back, isn't it? No, it's nice to be back. And um, yeah, just sorry to all the listeners that it, it took us so long, but. Um, we're back with a vengeance, so uh, watch out. Yeah, we are, man. We we got an incredible human being today. That was really good fun. How was it for you, Jay? It was thanks lovely, and thanks for having me on. Like, it's, yeah. it's super sick to see people doing this, especially outside of the capital cities, and bringing some love to the to yeah. the outer regions of the UK. So. Big love to you guys. Yeah, you Thank say you. the outer regions, yeah. but it just seems to be Birmingham at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, we are... I'm seeing some, co- I'm seeing some cool stuff in Leeds, in Leicester, in Liverpool. So it's yeah. the whole, it's the whole region. But we're all suffering under. Yeah, under no, the no, we're, we're gonna, we're gonna be uh, talking to some uh, people from all over soon. Anyway, we've got some more people. Yeah, on. I mean that was the point. We wanted to get out on the road, but um, yeah. We'll just have to wait a little bit longer for that. Yeah, that's it, man. But no, uh, thank you once again, James. Yes, man. honestly, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Pleasure to get to know you, man. It's been really, really cool. Jane, uh, Damien, I think this is where we wrap it up. It, it sure is. So, um, everybody, thank you so much. Uh, stay tuned. Subscribe to the podcast, and we'll see you in the next one. And uh, take care and look after each other. Love you.